right, morning everyone. How are we all doing? Let's get that one there. All right, just to quickly mention, uh, in the next couple of weeks, sometime when the service is not quite as full, we'll have a presentation for the men who completed the elders training course. Uh, so we're going to get them all up here. You'll see who completed the course over two years, and that'll be great. But what I also want to mention is the next training course will be kicking off in March. Uh, so if you're interested in that, man, come and talk to me. Uh, we meet fortnightly, uh, roughly over two years, and we work through uh, uh, an accredited program, basically, uh, where we pour in and we discuss deeper theology and ecclesiology, etc., and we seek to honor the Lord. So if you're interested in doing that, make sure you come and talk to me and get your name down. All right, last week we looked at who are we in Christ, and we really looked at the fact that you only have two possible identities. The first identity, you could make your race, your wealth, your looks, your career, but in the end, they are all just an expression of the same identity, which is you are a slave of the world and its desires. So you have one identity, slave of the world and its desires, and you can express that in lots of different ways, but it's all the same thing. You are a slave to the world and its desires. Or you can be set free, born again, die to the world and its desires, become a child of God, a slave of Christ, no longer living according to the world's opinions and expectations, but instead living for the glory of Jesus. That's the only other identity, right? So we can either be a slave of the world and its desires, or we can be a child of God, adopted into his family, and set free from slavery to the world. If that's you, if you've been adopted as a child of God by putting your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, well, it begs another question. If Jesus said it's finished, if it's done, if all we're awaiting is our final glorification, then the question becomes, then why am I here? If it's finished, if I'm a child of God, then Lord, take me. Seriously, the job's done, and I don't like this place, right? Like, take me home, Lord. So why doesn't he? So the question we're going to wrestle with this week is, why am I here? What's the purpose? Why are we here as Christians? And this is a huge question that everyone, Christian or non-Christian, has to have an answer to. If you want to avoid lying on your deathbed one day wondering if you've achieved anything at all with your life, this is a question that you need to answer. Firstly, why am I here from an atheistic or Gnostic worldview? Okay, so why am I here from a non-Christian? Well, if God doesn't exist, that means that life ultimately came about through natural, impersonal, unintelligent, and ultimately purposeless processes, right? That's what it means. Everything is a random accident. That means not only is everything a random accident, but you are a random accident. So you can have temporary reasons for life, like you're here because your parents wanted to have children, but ultimately there is no ultimate purpose and no ultimate sense of fulfillment for that life. 
Life is a big accident. You're a consequence of that cosmic accident. And really, in the grand scheme of things, life has no ultimate purpose. Now, this atheistic kind of worldview, it does throw up answers to the question, like you're surrounded by them all, all the time. One of them would be the concept of hedonism. The concept of hedonism, hedonism, is basically this, that you may as well live for pleasure and avoid pain. That is the purpose of life. There is no other purpose. Do what you enjoy and avoid the things that hurt, right? There you go. That's a wonderful purpose in life, isn't it? What do you think? You're all a bit sleepy this morning. Sorry? <laughs> problem is it doesn't work. That's the real problem. It doesn't actually work. Even secular philosophers realize the problems. They call it the paradox of hedonism. It says this, if you make happiness your goal, you won't achieve it because happiness only comes as the byproduct of a different goal. If you make happiness the goal, you won't achieve it because happiness is only the byproduct of a different goal. A uh, non-Christian philosopher, he wrote this. Think about this. But I now thought that this end, one's happiness, was only to be attained by not making it the direct end. Those only are happy, I thought, who have their minds fixed on some other object than their own happiness. Aiming thus at something else, they, cease, they find happiness along the way. Ask yourself whether you're happy and you cease to be so. <laughs> Interesting comment, isn't it? Ask yourself whether you're happy and you cease to be so. Another factor philosophers, not Christians, work in to do with this problem of chasing happiness is what they call the hedonistic treadmill. And it's the tendency of humans to quickly restore ourselves to a certain level of happiness. We all have a certain level of happiness, regardless of what happens in our life. According to this theory, as a person makes more money, their expectations and desires rise in tandem, which equals no permanent gain in happiness. Therefore, you are perpetually caught on a treadmill of always trying to get more to be happy, and as you achieve more, your happiness never actually changes, and so you're stuck on this treadmill of wanting to be happier and never getting there. Does that sound remotely plausible to people? I think it does. I think we understand that. Now, out of, that's kind of atheism. Out of Gnosticism, so Gnosticism means knowledge, right? And an agnostic is someone who says we're without knowledge. So God might be there, but we don't have the knowledge of him. We don't know how to know God. So that's agnostic, right? Gnostic means knowledge. Now, out of some of those views, we have interesting ideas about God. And people invent these ideas about God because it makes them feel better and it helps give them purpose. A common kind of agnostic view of God would be that God needs us. Right? What a wonderful thing. God needs me and that gives me purpose. God in some way was lonely or insufficient without me. And so he made me to fulfill himself. Now that's a lie, and it's absolute heresy. God has always existed. There's never been a time or place without God, and He's always existed in the perfect relationship of the triune God, and is in all and every ways complete and perfect and full in and of Himself. 
right? God is God. God does not need people to worship him and love him. There is no lack in God. He isn't lonely. He isn't insecure. The reason God commands people to worship him is that it is true and right for all things to worship their creator, right? It's right that we would worship God. God doesn't need our worship. So in answering this question, why am I here, I want to break it down into two different parts, two big sort of concepts of why you are here that are going to flow out of this, all right? The first one is a little bit more philosophical, and then we'll get practical. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, completed in 1647, uh, basis of Presbyterian churches today, basis of uh, the Baptist 1689 Confession, it poses the question, basically, why am I here? The answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So what's our ultimate purpose? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So that's your, why you're here. That is your purpose. It is to glorify God and then enjoy Him Let's look at a couple of quick passages. I'm going to open my Bible, and this is really sort of quick uh, to understand what this means. So Psalm 86, 8 to 9 says this. Psalm 86, 8 to 9. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name. All nations will come and bow down and honor your name. Ultimately, everything will result in the glory of the name of God. Romans 11.36 For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. From him, to him, through him, everything exists for one purpose. The glory of God. Right? All things, you exist ultimately for His glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. Right? Why were you made? Why are you His? For His glory. Thank you. I want this to be deep in your soul. The reason you exist, the purpose of your life, the reason you're you is for the glory of Jesus. Your whole life's purpose and direction is to bring glory to Him as all of creation exists to bring glory to Christ. Everything, right? Full stop. There's your simplest answer. Someone says to you, what do you do? Well, I exist for the glory of Jesus. And I'm a chippy, right? Like, like, seriously, the purpose of our lives is the glory of Christ. God created everything for his glory, not because he was lacking, not because he was needy, not because he wanted a relationship with you, but so you would glorify him. This is the exact opposite of hedonism. For what we have is this. I exist for the glory of God. And as I give my life over to his glory in the pursuit of glorifying Christ, there I find my joy and happiness, right? In the pursuit of glorifying Christ, 
there I find my joy and happiness. Our happiness is the byproduct of a different purpose. And the different purpose is the glory of Jesus Christ. When you give yourself over to that pursuit, your life will be full of joy. And we must grasp this. Unfortunately today, too many churches want to get up the front and waffle on about you being happy and fulfilled and blah, blah, blah. Who cares about your life? Glorify Jesus. In your heartache, glorify Jesus. In your tough times, glorify Jesus. That is the purpose of your life and that's where you'll find joy. Not in having any of those other things, right? Put Christ first, experience the joy of glorifying him. Psalm 135, 6, I love this, right? This sums it up for us. Psalm 135, 6. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all of the depths. The Lord does whatever he pleases. He's not constrained by us. He's not forced by us. He's not made by us. The Lord does whatever he pleases. And he is pleased to make creation. He was pleased to make you, to knit you together in your mother's womb. And his intention and purpose is that you would glorify him. Right out of the overflow of his pleasure. It's not a sermon unless you quote C.S. Lewis. So here we go, right? This is a good one from C.S. Lewis. To be sovereign of the universe is no great matter to God. He must keep always, we must keep always before our eyes that vision of Lady Julian's in which God carried in his hand a little object like a nut. And that nut was all that is made. God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Love it. God creates holy, superfluous creatures. How do you like being described like that, church? Surely not me. He needs my pastor bake. Where would God be without it, right? Like, where's my skills and talents that he exists for? Um, If it wasn't for my skills on the keys. um, No, you are superfluous to God. He has no need for you at all. But he chose to create you. He chooses to love you. He chooses to perfect you for the praise of his glory. Church, it's so hard for us to get this right because the world keeps telling that you are the center of everything and you're the center of nothing. Christ is the center of everything. And our life is given over to the praise of his glory. Here it is from the New Testament, Acts 17, 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. As though he needed anything. He himself gives you the breath you breathe. The one who gives you the breath you breathe isn't sitting there saying, but if you don't do it, I'm in trouble. He is sustaining you every moment of every day for his good pleasure 
and purpose. He doesn't need anything. So he created us for his glory, for his goodwill, for his good purpose, for his pleasure. Now, if you're sitting there, by the way, going, whoa, this is a bit of a slap in the face. It shouldn't be. This should actually be the center of your joy. Because you're created for the glory of Christ, not for yourself. So when you hear from the Word of God that you live for the glory of Christ, your result should be praise God. Right? Because that's why you exist. So what is it we do? He doesn't need us. He, it's not like he's served by our hands, said the Scripture. But our obedience to Christ is what gives him glory. Our response to the commands of Christ, freely given in love, is what gives him glory. Romans 12, 1-2 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In other words, hand over your life, hand over your everything to obedience to Jesus Christ, and that results in His glory. That is your act of worship, right? The surrender of everything to Christ is what brings Him glory. That is your spiritual act of worship. What does that look like? What is that sacrifice of handing over your everything to God? It means you let go of your hopes, you let go of your dream, let go of your career, let go of your relationship goals, whatever it might be, we let it all go and we say, my life exists for the glory of Christ and that is your spiritual act of worship. Right? So that is it. Your life, why am I here, is to give up everything to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Right? That's what it means to be his follower. Right. That's the first point. That's the big picture point. We are made to glorify God. We do it through our lives handed over in obedience. So secondly, what I want to say is what does that obedience look like? What is it that Christ has commanded you to do where we are going to see him glorified the most. Well, let's read, and this is our main little passage to finish with. This is really where we're building to. This is Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. So I'll actually give Jerome a chance to find that one. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. I really want you to focus in on this. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. 
Church, this is profound for you this morning when you want to know how it is your life will be lived for the glory of Jesus and how you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What this is saying is this. Lord of all means that Jesus has authority over all things, right? That's why it mentions it. He is Lord of all and in particular the church. That's what our passage just said. Why is that important? It means the Lord of our church, the head of our church, is the Lord of all things. There is no enemy that can overcome the church. Because the Lord of all things is Lord of the church, nothing can defeat His church. Amen? He's the Lord of all, including the church. The church has authority and power to overcome opposition because the head of our church is the Lord of all things. That should give us hope in changing and difficult times, which we've prayed about before. Lord of all and of the church in particular, right, is what we're saying about Christ. Now it says that the church is his body, right? We are his body. That's what it said. I'm pointing him his head over everything for the church, which is his body. This is a, a, a statement of intimacy, a statement that we are connected to Christ, that he is the source of life in the church. It's the same as the vine and branches type metaphor. If you cut the vine off from the branch, it dies. If you cut a part of the body, it dies. The church is intimately connected to Christ. Here's what I want you to zero on. This is amazing. Paul takes it further than simply saying the church is the body of Christ to saying it's intended to be the fullness of Christ in the church. The church is meant to reveal the fullness of Christ. Put differently, the church is meant to give expression in the world to the fullness of Christ who is all in all. Right? That's what Paul is saying. The church gives the full expression. Let me explain. I've talked to you guys before about grace and truth. It's what's tattooed in my arms in Greek for those who see me waving them around. Grace and truth. The prologue to the Gospel of John, it mentions twice that Jesus came in grace and truth. The phrase that I've told you guys who've been around a while is, grace without truth is, anyone? It's liberalism. Truth without grace is legalism. And we have to walk in a balance of grace and truth. Jesus came in grace and truth, right? Now, I've said all people will fall slightly to the grace side or the truth side. All of us have a tendency to want to pull to one of those sides or the other. And the truth guys are sitting there going, you grace people, you care about grace too much. Stop loving people and start belting them with the truth. And the grace people are like, why don't you stop belting people and at least love somebody and show them the grace of Christ, right? And we, so we sit there falling on slightly one side or the other. Let me tell you, who reveals Jesus more, the grace people or the truth people? Or is it grace and truth that represent the fullness of Jesus? 
right? Jesus came in grace and truth. And what we're reading in Ephesians is the church together combined will express the fullness of who Jesus is to the world. And will it be the grace people or the truth people, or will it be the grace and truth people in the church who will express the fullness of Christ? Right? This is what Paul is saying. We have people gifted in preaching. We have people gifted in hospitality. We've got people serving practically behind the scenes. We've got people who are great encouragers. We've got people who love building up. We've got people who contend for the truth. Which one of those things reveals Christ the most? None. It's all of those things combined which reveal the fullness of Jesus in the body of the church. Right? No individual can reveal the fullness of Christ or you would be Jesus. But in the fullness of the giftings of the body, which are appointed by the Spirit, as the body has needs, we reveal the fullness of Christ to a world who desperately needs to meet him. Love this quote, the head fills the body with powers of movement and perception and thereby, thereby inspires the whole body with life and direction. The sequence of thought here seems to be by his resurrection and ascension, Christ is exalted to be Lord of all. He is the head of all things for the church. The church is his body intended to express him in the world. More than that, the church is intended to be a full expression of him by being filled with his gathered people who in their various gifting and obedience reveal the fullness of Christ and bring him glory. Oh, seriously, come on. Right? If you're a Christian, if you're part of the body, that's, that's it. You are gathered together and we're different and we have different strengths and weakness and we've got different gifts and the fullness of that brought together reveals the fullness of Christ. Here's where I slap you though. This means if you are failing to use the gift the Spirit has given you, you are failing to serve the church. And we are lacking in our full presentation of Christ. That's serious, isn't it? If the Spirit appoints to the body as is needed, and the gifts in our body that were appointed are refusing to serve, then we are not giving a full expression of Christ in this church. We don't want that. Why are we here? To glorify Christ through our joyful obedience to his commands, which primarily apply to life in the church, which is where the fullness of Christ dwells bodily. In closing, this is our partnership series this year. Last week, I never mentioned partnership once. And this week, I'm going to mention it here in closing, right? But I hope you will get the drift. I hope you'll understand. What we believe is this, we are here to glorify Christ through our joyful obedience to his commands, which primarily apply to life in this church, where the fullness of Christ is meant to be expressed to the world. Where does partnership fit into that? 
the basis of our partnership is Philippians 1, 3 to 5. I will give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What is partnership in this church? Partnership in church is simply those who formally say, I want to glorify Christ through my joyful obedience to his commands, which I'm going to do with this body where I seek to express the fullness of Christ. That is partnership. Full stop. In this body right now where I'm coming to church, I want to glorify Jesus through my obedience and serve him faithfully, which will build the fullness of Christ as expressed here. One day in the future, you move town because of a different job or whatever it might be, great, find a church, become a part of that body and help them express the fullness of Christ, right? But here and now, if you're committed, that's what partnership means, okay? Expressing the fullness of Christ here in this body by taking up your part, the gift the Spirit has appointed you to and partnering for the glory of Christ. What is it the, the partners do? I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, really quickly. We've said this before. Let's take Matthew 18, church discipline. Right? Go to your brother one-on-one and try and resolve the issue. If your brother won't listen to you, take two or three others. If he, won't, if he still won't listen to you, tell it to the church. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Let's say we have here in the church someone committing adultery who is unrepentant. And we have someone confront them and they say, no, God wants me to have the other woman as well. And so we come with a brother and we say, no, this is wrong. You need to repent. And they say, no, I refuse. And so we tell it to the elders and the elders come and they say, listen, this is sinful. This is wrong. And they say, no, I refuse. And following the biblical principle, we tell it to the church. And so We are not going to stand up here on a Sunday and there are people here for their very first Sunday and say, look, we want to tell you that so-and-so there's an adulterer. That's wrong. That's not what this passage means. What it means is this, the people in the body who have agreed to the obedience of Christ for His glory, fulfilling their part as appointed by the Spirit, who love one another, care for one another, are committed to one another, they are the people that we're going to talk to and say, there's a part of the body now that needs to repent. Those who have made a commitment, those who are connected in, right? Doesn't that make sense? It's a recognition of how we handle those difficult situations. I mentioned last year, Beth and I were on holidays, visited a church, Our first time ever in this church, we're sitting there. They stand up and they go, hey, everyone, our pastor quit after only three months. Here's his resignation letter. And we're like, oh, it's kind of interesting. The resignation letter accused the church of lying and deceit in their selection process. It then listed by name people who had been so abusive and horrible that he said he could never enter pastoral ministry again uh, and that he was now basically a wreck and a shell of a man. And we're sitting there, first time in the church, going, this is awkward. Where should that have been addressed? With the people who have said, I exist to glorify Christ through my obedience in my part in the body 
here in this church, in other words, the partners in the gospel. Church, can I pull it to you? If you say, this is where I seek to glorify Jesus, this is where I want to be obedient to his name, I commit myself to glorifying him here and now, become a partner. Be involved in the life of the church and putting into practice the scriptures that Christ has called us to. Right? That's what it means to partner together in the gospel. May your life be given over to his glory. Your purpose be to see Christ glorified in every possible way in the fullness that the church can. And may you hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you, it's so clear. Lord, you don't depend on us, you don't need us. The best of our service is not something that you need to have happen. Lord, out of your good pleasure, out of your goodwill, you created us because you freely chose to and you choose to love us. And you chose to send Jesus to die and pay the penalty of our sin. You chose to give us life. You choose to give us glorification. You choose to adopt us into your family. Lord, in response to everything you have freely chosen to do, we offer up our lives for your glory. Lord, you alone deserve glory. Lord, through our obedience, through our lives lived for you, through our partnering together in the gospel, may the fullness of Christ be seen in this church and may his name receive the glory. Lord, we pray that in and through your precious name. Amen.